Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. I got my first ever job shortly before turning 16. My best friend Chris was working as a cart attendant at the local country club in our hometown of Noonan, Georgia, and had told me that they were hiring. I don't think I was necessarily looking for employment, and I had no interest in golf, but the prospect of hanging out with my best bud and getting paid while doing so seemed like a dream job. Our responsibilities as cart attendants were mainly cleaning golf carts and maintaining the driving range, but really, we spent most of our time just standing around inside a garage below the pro shop, waiting for the occasional golf cart to return for us to hose down. I remember really hating it any time I had to pick the driving range. I felt like a moving target much of the time, due to the frequency at which golfers would actively aim for the range picker. And though I was armed with this knowledge, as well as a protective barrier of plexiglass, it did not prevent having the shit scared out of me each time a golf ball managed to make contact. Combine that with your typical feelings of teenage alienation, and one could not help but take it personally especially whenever you'd catch sight of one of these rich assholes laughing about it. I'd also like to note how much I hated my uniform, which was just a white t-shirt with the Country Club logo on it, but it seemed they had only ordered them in a size large. Now I was a short and skinny teenager, desperate to be taken seriously, and my uniform looked as if I were wearing a nightgown. But the job wasn't all that bad. The summer that I worked there, I eventually got to be pals with some of the attractive lifeguards at the club's pool. I can remember wanting badly to be perceived as cool by them, and since my oversized uniform wasn't doing me any favors, my first attempts at getting them to notice me were driving by the pool in my 74 Volkswagen Beetle, with the windows rolled down, loudly playing gold sounds by pavement. I made sure to have the moment that I passed by them timed perfectly, with Stephen Malkmus' solo. That was the summer that Pavement became my band, and like all my musical obsessions, I started digging deep, learning about and listening to as much as I could for someone living in a small southern town pre-high-speed internet connection. And it was during this summer, a time in which all I wanted was for pretty girls to just say hi to me that I discovered a song by another Malkmus-involved band in which he, in another distinct voice, sang about watching someone gracefully swimming with country club women. I instantly felt a kinship with this song, and it would act as my introduction to Silver Jews and the mighty David Berman. Over time, Berman's works, both those that came before and those that followed, would increasingly become these formative guides as I stood on the cusp of and eventually entered adulthood. His profound and sometimes confusing truths helped me to better my understanding of both my surroundings and myself, such as leading me to recognize the utilitarian nature of corduroy, or that no matter how jealous I might be, no one deserves to be called a what's-his-name. As a Silver Jews fan... I also really rooted for Berman, aware of his numerous struggles. So needless to say, I was saddened and a bit worried when he made the announcement in 2009 that he'd be retiring from music. And of course, 
I was elated in 2019 when it was announced that he'd be returning to us with a new project titled Purple Mountains. And what a return it was. But in August of that same year, Berman left us again. Following his passing, I spent the ensuing weeks and months with his music on a near constant rotation. And the record I probably returned to the most during that time was 1994 Starlight Walker. I just remember needing that comfort of hearing the familiar voice of our hero calling me his friend and welcoming me in. So I continued to put on Silver Juice Starlight Walker. And like I had done so many times before, I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Bob Mustanovich. My job in Silver Shoes is mainly just to keep time playing behind two of my best friends, um, Stephen Malthus and David Berman. Fast cars, fine ass, these things will pass. band started in my apartment in Jersey City, then we moved down to Hoboken. And Now, when you are playing music with guys that Malcolm is, is just a fantastic guitar player and songwriter, and, and David's just a truly unique poet, you don't get in the way of the talent, you know. So I always felt my job in Silver Juice was, you know, kind of to like, let them be themselves and they'd known each other for a long time but their friendship like took a while to develop and um it was a very mercurial friendship yeah there was a little bit of ego rivalry there all the way through so i i kind of felt like my job was sort of like you know is very much you know member of a three-piece band was to sort of temper that tension which is also kind of a valuable aspect of bands born in new york Bob Nastanovich would spend the majority of his childhood in Virginia. After graduating from high school, Nastanovich would attend the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and it is there that he would meet David Berman. Yeah, I was just born in Rochester, New York, and then when I was five, my family moved to Richmond, and then so really the sort of the formative years of my life were spent in Richmond, and then I was lucky enough to get into the University of Virginia. So I went there in 1985 on my 18th birthday, and I was really just kind of too immature to go to school. I really didn't know what I was going to study. I just didn't have a clue. Um, David, on the other hand, who I met within the first 60 days of being there, because there weren't that many people um, out of 3,000 in our first year class that would go to see the bands that came through town, um, local and touring. And David and I got to know each other you know, pretty early along the way. Now, David was a highly accomplished scholar, mostly raised in Worcester, Ohio by his mother, but then he spent the last couple of years of high school in Dallas, Texas. So he's just kind of like gothy, you know, Cure, New Order, Joy Division. You know, he's six foot four, and he's kind of an imposing individual. We became, you know, friends, but like he, he was sort of meant to be a college student. And because of his unusual talent and poetry, he actually got the, you know, 
recognition of like really famous UVA professors, like within the first 12 to 18 months he was at UVA, I mean, you know, guys like that I'm largely unfamiliar with that are household names if you're a poetry fan like James Tate and Charles Wright. Here's this 18-year-old kid from Dallas who they just immediately considered a peer. Meanwhile, um, I was just this kind of, not a loser, but like academically I was. I was just kind of skirting by. I cared more about buying records and taking road trips to see bands. I was irresponsible. I was just too immature to be there. Like in a lot of ways, looking back, and I've told a lot of people this, like young people, you know, are really smart and, and good high school students that like, that. I probably should have taken a year off and worked some, some medial job. Then I was, would have appreciated the opportunity um, more of being at, at a good university. Um, but then again, I wouldn't have had the experiences that I did. Um, so I have, personally, I have no regrets. <laughs> um, my, my mother, who's alive and well in Richmond, might tell you differently. Um, she was a little disappointed with my academic performance. Around this time, Nastanovich would also befriend Stephen Malkmus, with he, Berman, and Malkmus all growing closer while working together at UVA's freeform radio station, WTJU. Stephen, who's a year older than us, his coincidental first-year roommate was a guy named Ken West, no relation to Steve West, who went to our high school. Now, I was friends with Ken, and he introduced me to Steven and that would have been like maybe my second semester first year. And then what really sort of brought us together in 1985 is that we're all really blessed to get college radio shows at a great college radio station there that still exists called WTJU. Um, Now it's like pretty high tech and kind of a big deal. Back then it was like kind of a, a bit of a kind of a free form, like carnival of, of, just like really sort of unique people like playing vinyl on two turntables and like partying while they DJed and stuff. So including myself, you know, Gay Pratt, who's, you know, you know, played a big role in a lot of Silver Juice songs. Um, Rob Chamberlain, who was a nice strong arm, John Beers, who was in Happy Flowers, James McNew, of course, he's been in Yellow Tango for years. Brenda Dunlap was the rock director. She like, you know, became like the costume designer for David Byrne, Kenny Askew, Carl Young's a great guy. I mean, it was just a really unique cast of characters. Oh, Steve, Steve and Star Keen, you know, the painter Steve Keen, um, who's a few years older. He had a radio show. Um, and I was good friends with Star's younger sister from Richmond, uh, Lucy. So yeah, it was, that was kind of like our, that was kind of our scene. And um, so college radio is really kind of what brought us all together. Um, and it was kind of a big part of our lives. We did weekly radio shows. And we, you know, bought records all the time. We took road trips. It was a fantastic time. After living in the university's dorms, Berman eventually moves into a large brick house near campus known as the Red House with Malkmus and Nastanovich becoming frequent visitors. It is there that the three friends, along with the house's other residents and visitors, begin playing music together under the name Ectoslavia. We just had this house that, you know, a bunch of us lived in. I was actually 
never a permanent resident, but I spent so much time there. I would actually sleep in the kitchen on the couch. And um, the basement down there was just a place where you didn't have to worry about being loud. And we just made a hell, a hell of a lot of noise down there. Ecto's lobby was just this, like, way of five or six of us going down there with, like, you know, crappy amps and crappy guitars. Like, there's a lot of actual, like, hitting things with metal going on. It was just, it was, we just made a hell of a racket. That's all it was. It was completely unlistenable. Um, it was just, like, us, like, thinking that we were cool. And then um, David and Gate actually tried to make a band out of it. And the first thing they did was, like, kind of fire all the people that were kind of half-assed about it, including myself. Um, and Steven. And um, so it was just, I think they actually played proper gigs, like a handful. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a band. The pictures look cool. Like it's documented. The pictures look cool, but believe me, if you were down there, like drinking a beer, watching this stuff, you wouldn't make it through the whole bottle. Following his graduation, Nastanovich decides to move to the New York area and is eventually able to convince Berman and Malkmus to do the same. As soon as I graduated, I drove up and moved to Jersey City. Yeah, and then I got a job working. I was completely out of money when I rented my first apartment. Stephen was in Stockton, and David was in Austin. And within the first few months, I thankfully, I convinced them to both move to New York. So they were there, like, you know, several months later. I was out of money. I had to eat, so I, was, I started working um, at Newark Airport at the UPS facility there, loading tractor-trailers, and then that was a rough gig, and then I got this bus driving job, and they moved there, and, and they needed to work, too. So they got jobs at the Whitney Museum of American Art on, on 75th and Madison, which was kind of like an art history education. It was actually a wonderful job for both of them. They were teamsters, actually, but they um, kind of got an education on modern American art by being forced to stand and look at it in galleries for, like, eight-hour shifts, you know. And David would have written, like, just an incredible amount of poetry while doing that, um, which is a very beneficial job for him. In time, the roommates, christening themselves Silver Jews, begin playing music together in their apartment, creating noisy, off-the-cuff performances of songs based around Berman's lyrics, which were then recorded crudely to cassette tape, or on certain occasions, into the answer machine of Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore. The first couple of weeks were in this, you know, pretty crappy apartment in Jersey City Heights, which is now kind of a nice neighborhood. And it was pretty, it was like way up on this hill, you get amazing view of Manhattan at night. And um, we lived across the street from Palisades Park, which was kind of pretty dangerous. Like, like you walk across the park and you crunch a lot of crack vials. So we had this apartment and we just started um, kind of jamming in that apartment. And then we were living with a couple who were actually really lovely, but we were kind of too obnoxious for them to deal with anymore. And they, they just had to do their own thing and they kind of got rid of us. So like we had 24 hours to find an apartment. I found this really junky apartment on Willow Avenue in Hoboken. And um, we moved our act down there and it was pretty much untenable for, 
Stephen, who was the first one to split, but that apartment which I lived in for oh, about a year and a half became sort of like the breeding ground of the early Silver Jews. So it was just like, you know, when there wasn't a gig to go see, or there, you know, there wasn't something to do, if we were definitely going to be in for the night. We would just kind of beer up and make Silver Jews songs in this really crappy basement apartment. And we sort of indulged in the fact that we had neighbors who lived above us um that were like 24-hour party people so we didn't have to worry about making noise kind of a perfect symbiotic relationship there's no way they could complain about us with like you know shitty amps i didn't even have a a drum kit i think there might have been one drum down there but it's mostly like boxes and other pieces of metal i would just keep time and um david had a, a shitty guitar called the math guitar that barely worked and Steven had his guitar and we would just kind of space things like a certain distance away from the TV set, put the tape recorder on top, try to work out a mix. There was an old school tape recorder with an adapter. Yeah, $2, I believe, a Radio Shack product with a condenser mic. So a key aspect of those early recordings was like, you know, get the mix right. In other words, like, moving the amps a certain distance away from that just completely unsophisticated but it worked you know like those guys would actually when the vocal parts came up they would sort of like sing right into the condenser mic from like you know a couple of feet away and i would be like 12 15 feet away trying to keep time and a lot of those nights, there'd be dozens of those nights. Um, we'd finish, like, you know, trying to construct songs, and David would have words. And, um, you know, a lot of times we thought we'd done something really sort of magical and brilliant. And then we sort of would listen to it the next day and realize that it was just, like, pretty embarrassing and awful. Um, this dear friend of mine who I dated for a while named Tanya Small, who's a clerk at Pure Platters, and she was friends with Steve Shelley and Steve Shelley gave her Thurston and Kim's phone number. And she somewhat irresponsibly um, gave me that phone number. And then, and um, occasionally we would think we'd made a great song. This happened a handful of times that we would call up and realize that they weren't home. And then we play the song to their answers. Just because it was, like, exciting. You know, it was just like, oh, wow, like, you know, Thurston and Kim, they're, like, heroes of ours. Like, we have their home phone number. Let's, like, you know, you'd have to ask Thurston if he, you know, if he remembers it or listens to it. He'd help. As far as I know, he probably erased it. Like, you know, whoever these assholes are playing into our answering machine, they, you know, did it again, you know. Prior to moving to New York, Malkmus starts pavement with his childhood friend Scott Camberg. After self-releasing their first EP, 1989 Slay Tracks, 1933-1969, the band begins working with a Chicago-based independent label, Drag City Records, who would release their second EP, Demolition Plot J7, in 1990. Two years later, Drag City releases the Silver Jew's Dime Map of the Reef 7-inch, beginning what would turn out to be a long and fruitful relationship between Berman and the label.
Miracles, you know, one of the best small record company executives in, in the world, I dare say, over the last 30 plus years, has been Dan Koretsky at Drag City, and um, David in particular was enamored with World Trucks, and uh, he was able to somehow get these rudimentary cassette tapes that we had made and send them to Dan, and Dan... And it, with his unusual tastes, um, sort of dug it. And it was, you know, of course, it was during a time where lo-fi was just really being embraced. So we sort of bene- benefited from that stylistically because we, did, we really didn't have anything to record into. In the summer of 93, Drag City releases the band's second EP, the Arizona record. It is around a year later that Berman would briefly relocate to Oxford, Mississippi, and it is during that time that he would begin to work on the material that would make up Starlight Walker. We'd taken a few trips during college and post-college, and he became very intrigued with that Delta Blues area, and he really was intrigued by Oxford. He just decided he was going to spend a few months there in the summer, and somehow he worked out some gig, like, just outside of town where he he rented a a place that was a very small chemistry lab that was owned by a chemistry professor at the University of Mississippi. Um, And so he's living in this chemistry lab. There's like beakers and everything everywhere. We just crashed. There's a couple of cats. It was very small. I remember it had like that kind of like really ugly wood paneling, but he he was getting it for like Less than 200 a month. I would guess like 150. And um, just being David off in the woods, like isolated, um, needed a break from the city for whatever reason that I don't know. He just, uh, you know, for whatever reason, like, yeah, he just didn't want to work at the Whitney anymore. And he just needed a break from urban life and it was a brief break and I I think he decided that he can't make the material that eventually became Starlight Walker unless he was in something that he was vaguely familiar with Oxford, Mississippi, kind of in the middle of nowhere kind of living in the woods so um, a key aspect of Starlight Walker is that he was isolated and he was kind of off on his own he was in the middle of in the middle of nowhere. With Nastanovich having joined Pavement in the spring of 1990, and the recognition that both Pavement and Silver Jews were beginning to receive, Berman would begin to grow frustrated with the inevitable association between the two bands. With his new batch of lyrics complete, Berman decides to abandon the lo-fi, spontaneous aesthetic of the group's previous efforts, and for the first time, go into a professional recording studio to make the band's next record. By the time Starlight Walker came around, David's confidence had grown to a point where he was very, very sick and almost insulted in a sense for it to be called a pavement side project. Because it was his vehicle and it was a separate thing and it was significant and had it had its own place so that just came from david like um wanting to 
separate himself from the frivolity of being called a pavement side project and him wanting to make, um, for lack of a better term, a real record. Those months in New York that led up to that and then led him going to Oxford, like he, this is his attempt to make a real record in a studio. Yeah, it was like, I don't want to be a lo-fi pavement side project band, you know. It was just confidence on his part. Like, okay, I've already done this. I do it well. It's limiting. And it was the first sort of big step he made in his musical career. Um, so Steve West, who at the time just joined Pavement, who's one of my best friends since the ninth grade. I mean, I went to high school with him, and we're still really close. And, um, you know, he's he started drumming when he was 13, 14 years old. And I never played music at all until really until to a few few days before the first pavement show when I was nearly 23 years old. Um, so I can't really play more than two drums. Steve West played a drum kit. So we um, brought Steve West into the mix, and he was sort of the perfect fourth member. And um, the way Starlight Walker worked was kind of interesting. Um, we all went down there and hung out with him and, um, Steven and I first spent 48 hours with him and he had these words written down on paper, um, that eventually were all the songs. And I don't know if there's other songs, I'm sure there are, but, um, he's the, he's the kind of songwriter that the words are more important than anything else. Like he is very judgmental of lyrics and everything started with, with his lyrics in his poetry um so basically you would just get handed about 20 poems and you had to kind of like kind of build the music around it now his skills as a musician were similar to mine um in that he at the time he was a very rudimentary guitar player throughout the course of his career in music he actually forced himself to do something that's not natural for him and that's get way better at playing guitar. Um, but even all the way through to Purple Mountains, he kind of relied musically on um, you know, more talented people. Sessions for Starlight Walker would be held at Easley McCain Studio, located an hour and a half away from Oxford in Memphis, Tennessee. Constructed in the late 60s as the city's first purpose-built recording studio, it would at various times be operated by legendary producers Chips Moman and Don Cruz, as well as act as the home studio for the Barquets. By 1990, Doug Easley and Davis McCain had taken over the lease, and the studio would be host to a number of notable sessions, including those by Alex Chilton, Wilco, and the John Spencer Blues Explosion. I can't remember what records had been made there um, that... I think he'd heard good things. Um, probably Steven had heard good things. It's a great studio. At the time, it was a landmark studio. It eventually burned down. It was like you walk in, and there's a little reception area with couches and stuff. A big building, you know, cheap real estate. As I recall, it was kind of like an ugly color white on the outside. Then there's their control room or where all the magic happens or whatever. Well, the music happens was a huge, vast space. Um, 
and to say like in a thousand square foot room with really high ceilings. And then there was a couple of maybe three or four medium sized enclosed rooms for vocals and other noises and stuff like that. And they had some really cool equipment in there. So it was a big space. It was just like a really cool recording studio. We had a great friend in, in Memphis. Um, he's still a good friend named Sherman Wilmot. There was a really great record store called Shangri-La. And we knew him. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, he played his role saying, you know, these are great guys. And this is a great recording studio. The price was fair. The equipment was amazing. And the biggest benefit were, you know, Doug Easley and Davis McCain. I mean, they're just, they're just great guys to record with. When you walk into a recording studio and you don't really consider yourself a musician, you're very self-conscious. And um, I think David and myself are kind of anxious, self-conscious people anyways. Um, these guys like kind of immediately relieved that. Um, it was a real studio, so we couldn't afford to book too much time. So our time was kind of finite. Um, I don't know. I think it was maybe, a, if I had to guess, like a two or three days, three day session, two or three day session. You know, it's like it's all part of Davis game plan, which is pretty amazing. You know, like, you know, he just kind of he just kind of like plotted this all out with, you know, Dan, you know, he's an incredibly generous person, like picking up the tab. But, the, you know, the budget was reasonable and he had a lot of faith in us. And he was very excited about, you know, Silver Cheese. I think it sort of always like gotten some attention on on Drag City. And like, you know, David's like, I'm going to try to kick this to the next level. And, you know, Dan's support of it was remarkable. And then they made a record. Hello, my friends. Hello, my friends. Come on, have a seat. Come on, in my kitchen. My friend, take it easy My friend, have a seat My friend, don't you know that I never want this minute And then it ends Starlight Walker opens with the track Introduction to in an interview that he did with Sun Zoom Spark magazine a few months after the album's release, Berman stated that he wanted Starlight Walker to be seen as more of a straightforward, warm, non-cynical, humble record, something pretty friendly and welcoming. Introduction 2 accomplishes just that. Gone is the static that often permeated the band's earliest recordings, masking both voice and lyrics. Here, Berman's warm and clear voice greets the listener as a sparsely strummed guitar, accompanied by bass and tape hiss, occupy the track's sonic space. I think that David at this point wanted to make sure that you could hear all of his words. That was always a priority, and that was one of the reasons why this record was made, as opposed to continuing to do this like lo-fi mess, that he wanted his words to be very audible. Very honest, very clear. Like you can hear, um, this uh, high level of sincerity. 
you know, the lyrics and the um, vocal recording are fantastic. Um, it's just David decided that he, through his knowledge of listening to music, wanted to have a welcome to the album song. And as simple as that may sound, that's why this song exists. Um, the only little twist on it is that instead of it being called Introduction, he called it Introduction 2 because he probably had Introduction 1 and he chose Introduction 2 instead. I think that if you play the first two songs on this record back-to-back, Trains Across the Sea, but if you play them back-to-back, it's like a, just kind of a really great four-minute listen. Nice segue. It just kind of works really perfectly. But I think that David, just like in the case of the first song, which is brief, he decided he actually wanted to... Um, he had this concept for this record of like, let them in, like, like almost like it's a party or an event and welcome. Here's introduction to, and then trains across the sea fit sort of perfectly. It's an, it's an interesting album because the sequence, unlike most records, the sequence then is like something that's studied through several months of listening so like that. The sequence of this record was pretty well planned out by him before we even started. I don't think there were any adjustments made to it. interviews he did before his death that this was the first song he ever wrote. The track Trains Across the Sea is a Berman classic that also hints at the country-influenced direction that Silver Jews Records would take on future releases. Colored with pedal steel provided by Doug Easley, as well as piano, a driving bass line, and Nastanovich's steady and primitive drumming. The song acts as the true introduction to Berman's singular voice as a writer. It's been evening all day long. It's been evening all day long. And how can something so old be so wrong? Sin and gravity drag me down to sleep. To dream of trains across the sea, trains across the sea. You know, trains across the sea, which is, in my mind, like you know, I don't, I, I refuse to brag. <laughs> um, that's about as good as I can do. What would be to most drummers a very simple song to drum? was quite difficult for me. Um, one thing you should know about most of the songs on this record is they were all done in less than five takes. I believe that 
introduction to would have been second take and trains across the sea would have been third take so we only ever played those songs that long in the studio and we were the kind of band at least on this record where somewhat wisely i think bands sort of like commit album suicide when they do this um they'll miss like fantastic versions of songs that were probably in the first five passes. I think the songs that Westy plays on required more passes. I remember sitting there, keep in mind with like when I would play drums on a song, um, certainly in this band on this album, I would finish and I would say, okay, that's the best I'm going to do. And I think that, that, that my bandmates, sort of sense that so so you know like things were added you know there's some overdub action on trains across the sea the lyrics are you know very precious and you know near and dear to my heart in 27 years i've drunk 50,000 beers and they just washed against me like a sea into a pier <laughs> yeah that is kind of true <laughs> It's been evening all day long. Half hours on Earth, what are they worth? It's just, um, you know, I, I, I'm not a highly accomplished, celebrated, well-decorated poet. You know, um, he is, and this is one of his best sets of lyrics. It's an old poem. It's something he, did, he would have written um, that as a poem. Um I don't know how early on, but it was something that it was probably the only thing that he had completely in his back pocket uh, before he started to conceive the record. I mean, I think there's three songs on this record that are, are considered like um, for silver juice fans, certainly three that are considered like, you know, some of the best songs ever, ever written by David. And that would be trains across the sea and, um, New Orleans for sure and advice the graduate. Referring to songs of this sort as palate cleansers, The Moon is Number 18 is the traditional Silver Jews instrumental that Berman would include on each release, starting with 1993's The Arizona Record and ending with 2001's Bright Flight. instrumental it's just like um, I think it just sort of fit like you know time for an instrumental and like um, I think we had actually made it up on the spot so it's made up completely made up on the spot and done in one or two takes the minutes number 18 was just kind of us trying to be kind of like you know the drum beats obviously very simple and tribal and it's just an easy kind of like 
jam, which sounded like, um, it actually started with, um, bar scene from star Wars, the silver juice doing instrumentals. So it's kind of like, it vibes off of that. Um, just kind of a, a fun, easy, like, you know, like I think he described it perfectly. It's a palate cleanser before he gets into his next serious set of lyrics. If you got a message, leave your name and number, and we'll get back to you. Following the Moon is number 18. It's the hopeful sincerity of advice to a graduate which also marks Steve West's debut as a Silver Jew. by Malchus are a fantastic element to the song and I, I think David wrote his um, vocal part but it's a it's just a great performance by them um, and specifically we had a friend named Hunter Kennedy that has a had a really cool literary arts magazine called The Minus Times and um, his younger sister was named Weiwei and they're from Charleston. I don't think any of us had ever met Weiwei um, Kennedy, but she ended up going to Sewanee. And I mean, I met her afterwards, but um, we have the, this concept of Weiwei, which is an amazing name. It was a real name, W A Y W A Y. But this concept of her is just kind of being like, you know, this future brilliance. Um, and I think that I always felt that it was kind of like you know, David writing a song, even though, of course, Stephen says, I've got a lot of hope for the new man and the new world. It was mostly about just like some basically like positive song about hope, you know, just like, just like a really um, impactful song. Um, I just love that song.
chakras never felt wrong Looking at you, I'm a staring Look at how you make me feel good now With its minimalist approach and wordless chorus, the track Tied to the Oceans is one of a number of works by Berman in which he would draw inspiration from water and is the only track on the album for which he and Malcolmus share songwriting credit. And by the way, besides Trains Across the Sea, I'm pretty sure this is my favorite song on the record, you know, in case you were wondering. collaborative thing those guys like david had like sort of like the you know sort of the beginning bits like steven really helped him flesh that out in the chemistry lab the two or three times we practiced it um mostly i just kind of sat and listened to them that steven made some contributions to the actual lyrics so that's why he would actually get like a proper credit um and the drumming was sort of like back to me and back to um, complete simplitude. Um, <laughs> very, very minimal, like obviously extremely minimal drumming. One take, it was on a sheet of paper um, at my feet looking down in David's handwriting and you know, it was fun to, like, as a drummer, go into, like, 4-4 four, four time and then dip out and let them kind of work their magic. We knew what we were doing. We played it two or three times in the chemistry lab. Steven worked out his parts. Um, we, there's no way in a million years I could ever duplicate that drum part. Um, it was one take. Um, I don't even think there are any overdubs on it. I think it was a actually one take. It was the original Silver Jews, and it was the way we used to make songs at Willow Avenue in a recording studio. And so it was like one and done. The whole process of making that song took four minutes in the studio. And, um, you know, it's interesting that two of the best songs on this record are about um, salt water. <laughs> um, he never really struck me as a nautical guy, <laughs> um, a seafarer. I just think it was something that that he intrigued him and was like a, like a bit of a mystery to him. You know, I think just to be very vague, like kind of the mystery of the ocean and the sea intrigued him as a writer. So, you know, 
that that would be all there was there like things he didn't know you know um it was easy for him to write about things that he didn't know that he imagined were a certain way because it was like venturing into the unknown so it doesn't come from any personal experience so this is a guy that was you know spent most of his life inland he wasn't a beach guy you know he was never really close to bodies of water other than you know lakes and rivers so um yeah just yeah i think it's yeah i think it's just like a world a world unknown that intrigued him um that was like something that he could just like call from his imagination as opposed to his reality Sharing its title with one of the signature songs of original Grand Ole Opry star D. Ford Bailey, the track Pan American Blues is a song that came out of a collaboration between Berman, Malkmus, and West in New York after Nastanovich had relocated to Louisville, Kentucky. It's a song that I know um, very little about. I don't remember being a part of it in any way, shape, and form. I remember sitting there and watching it be recorded, and it was a song that when I went to the chemistry lab in Oxford that um, wasn't presented to me. I think it was something that um, those three guys, I think it's a song that West and Berman had, had fleshed out. Keep in mind that during this period, like West had become the new drummer in pavement, so he's jamming with Malcolm all the time, and he's really good friends with Berman, and my guess would be that it was sort of like the Silver Shoes song that came out of like um, their friendship in New York when I wasn't there. Um, love the song. Really cool. It is also in the lyrics of Pan American Blues that Berman mentions his close friend, Gate Pratt, a name that would appear in the liner notes of several of Berman's works, with Pratt's name and address specifically printed in both Starlight Walker and its follow-up 1996 is the Natural Bridge, is a place where fans were encouraged to write. That's um, Gates' uh, middle name. His name's Gaither Limehouse Pratt. He's uh, quite a character, an amazing dude. Um, one of David's best friends since 1986-87. Um, when David moved to the Red House, Gate lived there. Um, one of my good friends from college. 
he was an architecture student. He was the same year as Stephen. He knew Stephen before us. He was a big supporter of all of ours, in particular David. And, um, you know, he's co-written a bunch of Silver Jew songs and at least one of Purple Mountain songs. smoke well you can't say track New Orleans expertly pairs Berman's mysterious and poignant lyrics with Maltmus's understated lead guitar work, greatly emphasizing the power of this collaboration, which would be fully realized a few years later with the release of 1998's American Water. Those guys, like, they, they had, starting with this record, definitely from American Water, and at a period of years where they were working some sort of magic together that only stuck for a few years. And it kind of began um, before this session, but it kind of like first came to light in, in a studio sense on this record. And I think American Water is the best example of their collaborative powers. Um, and they were never able to replicate that level. I think that those guys were just clicking then. They were on the same page you know Stephen really enjoyed not being the focal point of the band um david was and he was you know Stephen. he never really struck me in any situation in terms of recording music as as being particularly egotistical um yeah those guys they they were clicking in the 90s Inside the song. Well, we're trapped inside the song. Trapped inside the song. Trapped inside the song. Where the nights are so long. Trapped inside the song. Trapped inside the song. Trapped inside the song. Where the nights are so long. Trapped inside the song. Uh, New Orleans is like kind of pure. It's truly 
a song about this mysterious place. To me, it's the kind of place where if I'd moved there when I'm when I was 30, I'd probably be dead. So the song New Orleans by Silver Jews is like um, with limited experience in New Orleans at the time. I went to Mardi Gras one time when I was 25, and that was the right age to go. Is just old enough and just young enough to sort of take it all. I went with my dear friend, Kenny Jackson, who's a restaurateur, actually has a fantastic restaurant. It's actually a taco place in New Orleans, but it, the, guy's a, a, the guy's a great guy named Kenny Jackson. I went there. He had a friend um, that we stayed with. I went with Jeff Dukes, my college roommate. We had a blast for five days. Um, we probably slept 12 hours in five days. Um, I played a bunch of shows there. Um, I went to Kenny's wedding there. I like the place. It's a very unique place. Um, the food, obviously, is amazing. And and this is sort of David's take on the town with also limited experience over being there. The song New Orleans is his take on the mystique of New Orleans. Um and just sort of the things, the unknown things that may or may not go on there. I mean, uh, I think it's one highly talented poet's take on an amazing, highly unique American city. The song New Orleans by the Silver Jews is about that mystique and its history and the way David felt about it with limited actual knowledge of the place. He'd been there, but he hadn't spent a lot of time there. So he felt that vibe, that sort of, there's a certain, obviously a humid place, but there's a certain kind of heaviness in the air. I mean, there's a lot going on there. It's, it's our take on New Orleans. So it's the way... New Orleans sounds and means to us. I'm proud to say, as a member of Silver Jews who played on that song on that record, that that's that's the best we can do as a as a tribute to a city that intrigued us, but we couldn't really put our feet on the ground. Following New Orleans is the country diary of a subway conductor, which is essentially a David Berman poem set to a cacophony of sounds. All the way to the poorhouse. It's not made if it's in Roanoke. Okay, here it comes, night. He's pulling up in front of our house like a bus. Came at me with shears. Sweater had faces all over, famous faces, knitted all over. Fortunately, ticked off since daylight time. How many hours do you think it take you to smoke those cigarettes, you said with a smile? smell of fried foods came drifting out one of the castle windows. Let's go around the back, I said. My brother burned some stuff back there. We ducked down and walked through the black bushes. My shoe made a sucking sound in the turf. He can afford anything, I said. He's got dogs that blow on trumpets. Treesh, gust. Thunder. Cracks over Ben Franklin's shop. He wrapped my dreams in a blanket and led them outside to the black book of the yard. Lee Ronaldo did a thing on... Evil, I believe, is a Lee Ronaldo song, and like we always thought it was cool um, back then in college. And this is our attempt to do that. This is a, this is definitely um, 
Silver G's trying to be like Evil slash Sister Era Sonic Youth. It's definitely a Silver G's song that is um, deeply influenced by um, of by not old things, things that like were big to us just a few years before. Like it's like us trying to be cool, sort of thing. To me, it's like the most discardable song on the record. But I'm not saying it's not good, but I, to me, it's like, um, you know, even the, the number 18 is like more pure juice. To me, it's us like trying to be something else and like doing a decent version of it. Trying to be like, you know, that sort of really great era of Sonic Youth where they were sort of like, you know, kind of flawless. As we near the end of the record, we get the economical pop of Living Waters. on the record after the kind of the noise blast that is Country Diary of a Subway Conductor and I know it was just kind of like David thought it fit really perfect it was kind of like again mentioning other bands that influenced us it's kind of like yeah we were all huge REM fans David probably being the least of which um, certainly Malcolm West and myself were and so it's kind of like got kind of a kind of a shiny happy people feel to it um it's just a pop song it's just a really good pop song that's like light and airy it's also honest it's him like um it's very simple the lyrics are very simple i just think it's like a very simple song that makes an impact and fit on the record because it's not like anything else on the record it's very pleasant it's a very pleasant Sometimes I dream of Jesus It's like he's coming through the walls When I'm working at my desk at night I hear his footsteps in the hall You can't believe me, not believe me 
Another number from the record that musically draws from country music, with lyrics that were at least partially inspired by a romantic relationship of Bermans. Rebel Jew's a love song. This is a tribute to a woman he was in love with for many years named Michelle Ostro, um, who currently lives in Austin. It was David's girlfriend from the age of 18, 19, off and on, several breakups for about a decade. They maintained a friendship even after their relationship completely dissolved after about the fifth breakup. I know he wrote a bunch of love songs as tributes to Cassie. This would definitely be, at this point in Silver G's, like his first attempt at a love song and sort of a tribute to Michelle. All the time I dream of Michelle And the towers in her mind some women lie down with killers Oh, my baby's not that kind She is a real good girl Yeah, she's a real good girl And she stops the world so I can see There was a time that we were traveling around the Delta and David and Michelle weren't getting along. It's me, Steve West, and David. We're taking a road trip from Charlottesville to Mississippi, and they weren't getting along. And like, um, you know, Steve West is like a very benign person. He's not controversial. He's like a back off kind of person. He's just non-confrontational, and I'm not. Like, um, I'm more like direct. Also, good friends with Michelle, and I would get in trouble for telling David that he should just move on and then like David was sort of unfairly would tell Michelle like what I thought like as if my opinion was important and of course I would get some resentment from Michelle um, justifiably I guess and it's like that's like when you tell your friends something you don't think they're going to share with their girlfriend that they're like in this like semi broken up state with but this was a love song um, to her and about her and it's that simple. Um, it's a song made by the Silver Jews. It might be conceived as something sort of like a fictional character, but it's not. It's about his dear friend and one of the first loves of his life, Michelle Ostra. Starlight Walker ends with the instrumental track, 
the silver pageant, featuring that signature silver juice sound of a strummed electric guitar acting as the song's anchor. Electric piano and the background noise of clinking glasses and the chatter of friends adds a layer of sweetness to the final track. If Introduction 2 was meant to welcome the listener in, then the silver pageant is the ending of the festivities and the saying of goodbyes. Side note, I recently had a realization while on a road trip in which I listened to every Silver Juice record from start to finish in chronological order. I found that of the first four full lengths, the two that Stephen Maltmus played an important role in, Starlight Walker and American Water, the albums end with songs containing a full band arrangement, but of the two that he was not involved with, The Natural Bridge and Bright Flight, those records end with sparsely arranged numbers. Knowing how much Berman conceptualized his work, can't help but think that this was a conscious decision. Well, yeah, heavily, heavy on the planning. Um, perhaps guilty of overthinking things. I think that um, the, the Purple Mountains record is probably the most extensive and clear-cut example. Um, the difference between an album like Starlight Walker and Purple Mountains was there was way more spontaneity. And Purple Mountains was like years in the making. Um, even technical numbers was like, um, that's a pretty big endeavor. All the records he made when I wasn't associated with what he was doing were like big tasks. Um, he was obsessed with it. I think, it, you know, and, and keep in mind, like, this was his first taste of studio music. So um, these experiences became really big deals to him. The interesting thing about the Silver Pageant was it wasn't meant to be on the record. It was impromptu. It was made up completely on the spot. It was like the album started with an introduction too, and it ended with the silver pageant. It was like, like David just decided during the course of this 48 to 72 hour period, like now it's time to close the record. Like I remember him saying like, let's pretend we're at a party and there's a lot of people at a party. And, and that's all that song is. I mean, it's, it's the party wind down. Um, Andrew Sherman, who's Steve's wife, who, who you can hear her voice, Steve West's wife, you, you can hear her voice, and she played the triangle on it. I think it's the only recorded moment she has in her life. And so it's like, you know, we need to just make it sound like a party. And then we kind of looked around like there's just like Andra, you know, she's never played music before at all. And like there's a triangle. So like you, that's the female voice that's on it, you know. So it sounds like, you know, we actually had a girl at one of our parties. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but she's fantastic. But it, there's really not much to it. It's one take. Um, it's like, you know, pretty easy mix. It just sounds like um, a party with like 15 people in an apartment, but it's actually like about five or six of us. I mean, like no tricks. So, you know, that's all there was to it. As simple as it may sound, that was just like a one-off and it was like, we did it once and it was like, yeah, perfect way to end the record. I think we kind of like covered all the bases and I think that we kind of did everything we wanted to do with the record. There weren't that many discards. Um, there were songs that never really got started because he decided like on the trip up there that just wasn't even going to give him a try. So I think that when I, when I really think back on Starlight Walker is that he had 
um, about two or three of those songs, um, and certainly the last, were made up completely on the spot. And it was like, okay, good enough. You know, and there's also some consciousness of like running out of studio time. For the album art, Berman chooses a photograph by photographer Billy Smith as the record's front image. And like he would do on all subsequent Silver Jews releases, the band name appears in the upper left-hand corner, with the album's title appearing on the back. David was like a, a tremendous, and the Whitney actually propelled this further. His years he spent working as a security guard in the Whitney, which, as I mentioned before, involved him basically standing and looking at art, which is sort of an unnatural thing for um, a lot of people do, but I think most people who do it don't spend their spend their time obsessing over the aesthetics of the art. So when you have like artists doing that, David, who's a poet, Stephen, who's a thorough songwriter, Steve West, who's a sculptor, um, you know, went to school for sculpture. Those guys were like trying to figure out why and um, why these things were on museum walls. And they, I mean, their art criticism at the time was high level and it, they were security guards. So they're working with like, you know, a lot, a lot of older people who like never even thought about the art. It was just their way to make $17 an hour. Um, he was an incredible um, student of aesthetics. If you walked into any of the dozens of rooms that he lived in, in his life or his house, even at one point, the apartment I mentioned on Willow Avenue um, at one point, he was sharing the front room with a woman named Jill Fantaza. And it was like a tiny room that was maybe 200 square feet. And um, David was paying $155 a month and Jill was paying 145 So David split the room like 53-47 with duct tape. And Jill, who was a... Um, a food server at a nearby restaurant. It was a good friend of ours from college who actually plays some percussion on the background of the early Silver Jesus recordings. She was just there, like part of the party. It's a really lovely woman. And like Jill would like, one it was one of those people that would like drag things in off the street. There's like an old tired, a tree branch on her side. And like David was just like incredibly meticulous when it came to like the things he had. It's like the last, place i visited him on his birthday um a couple of years ago he was living in this tiny little dorm room space at drag city that just had like you know an incredible amount of like just weird things that he collected i mean like every room he lived in like his house in nashville he's just like an amazing curator of the way things look. Yeah. And like the guy that like took the front cover, he had this kind of crazy friend, um, in Oxford that he met, um, who took all the photos for Starlight Walker. Um, he was a photographer, a local photographer in Oxford. And we met him briefly and he made the front cover photograph, which is just, I think just an autumn shot in Oxford, a picture that David loved. And then he took, we had this like 15 minute photo shoot and he took the, amongst his 12 photos, he took the one on the back. Drag City releases Starlight Walker on October 24th, 1994. 
The record would be well received by critics from both the mainstream and alternative presses, adding further to the positive feelings already surrounding the album's creation. Keep in mind, these albums were recorded near like some of the world's best barbecue places. I had like, you know, Pains, which makes, you know, one of probably the best chopped pork shoulder sandwiches in the country to this day was about a mile away. Um, Cozy Corner wasn't far away, which, you know, just world class rib joint. I mean, like, I don't I don't think they ate as much as I did. I'm a big eater. I pretty much had sauce on my face the whole time, you know, so. It was great. It was great to walk out of there. It was great to hang out with Doug and David. It was great to feel welcome. It was great to like hang out at night with Sherman. Um, it was just a really great three days. And, and like, um, I think when we sent it off to Dan and Dan heard it, it was like very triumphant. And then when it came out, I don't know how many they pressed the first time around, but I think they all sold out. It was just like, it was exactly what David sort of set out to accomplish. It was like mission accomplished. And it wasn't painstaking, at least not for me. And um, so to me, it was just like, you know, it was a marvelous experience. And I think like, I'm happy that people like, you know, really dig it. And that on like a lot of records, it's actually, it's stood the test of time, which is a, a test for any record, especially those made in the, early to mid nineties. I think that the studio engineers, um, Doug and Davis deserve a lot of credit for taking this kind of ramshackle act that was somewhat unprepared and making us immediately feel comfortable and sort of recognizing that we were like nice and sincere people, um, and sort of getting sort of the most out of what to them was like a, a brief uh, appearance in their studio. Um, they didn't want to waste our time. We didn't want to waste theirs. So looking back on it was a marvelous experience. And I haven't thought about it like in this way in a long time. Um, when I listened to it today, I remember, you know, sort of a lot of things. And, and um, I, I was just, you know, happy to be associated with it. I was happy to welcome Steve West and his level of competence of the band because I was self-conscious about not being good enough to play in studios, um, which I sort of carried on really throughout the rest of my career as, as a recording studio musician, which was rather limited to be honest. Like, you know, I haven't spent that much time in music recording studios and this is my first experience in one. And it was, it was, a, it was a very pleasant one. Following the release of Starlight Walker, David Berman would continue his journey as a songwriter creating a -a one-of-a-kind body of work that emphasized his uniquely unparalleled lyrical talents. His was truly a singular voice, a voice that in regards to making music may have not persevered had it not been for the experience of recording Starlight Walker. But the mighty David Berman did persevere, and for those of us that have been fortunate enough to have connected with his music, we're just grateful that he did. Silver Jews forever. I think that it kick-started him. I think it made him believe that he could actually be like a musical artist um, and more than a poet. I think it was a very key turning point in his experience and that he didn't have to worry anymore about anybody 
referring to Silver Jews as a pavement side project anymore. I think that despite the fact that three members of pavement played on the record, it was clearly like it was David Berman's Silver Jews, which it always was. And um, I think that without this record and that experience, there wouldn't have been any of the subsequent albums that he made. Yeah, for him, it was a marvelous experience. Um, it was a time where I wasn't hanging out with him very often because of I lived in Louisville and he was up in New York and I was touring all the time. And then eventually he moved back down to Louisville and we started hanging out more together. Um, he was just pumped. Um, he was he was pretty excited about it in a good way. You know, it was just it was it was a good experience. Which I can't say about everything, you know, but that was. Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Bob Nastanovich for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Starlight Walker and more from Silver Jews at silverjews.bandcamp.com various streaming platforms and dragcity.com Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at lovingrecollection.com We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.